man, telling him what to do while he delays. But in this letter, it's not just information. He's, there, there are words that describe what Timothy is to do. There's the words to urge, urging him that he must command. So, just to mention them, we won't look them up, there's no need to read each one of them, but in chapter 1, verse 3, is one that's worth picking up. 1, 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Now, in one sense, uh, most people will take verse 3 as the kind of topic as what the whole book is about. Whereas I think the whole book is what chapter 3, verse 14, 15 is about. Uh, this is what he's really doing, part of which is to charge people, charge certain persons, not to teach any other doctrine. But he's to command them, he's to charge them. And throughout the letter there is this sense of command that Timothy is to do. Chapter 4, verse 11, command and teach these things. Uh, chapter 6, verse the end of verse 2, teach and urge these things. It's not just pass on information, but rather it is the urging, the encouragement as to what is to be done. Uh, chapter, so, but throughout it there is teaching. So teaching is one of the great themes that happens through the, through the book. Uh, chapter 2, verse 12 talks about the women in teaching, but you move down to chapter 4, verse 11, I just read a moment, command and teach these things. That is, it's not just make up the rules, not just apply the rules, not just command the rules, but command the rules and teach people, help people to understand the why, the wherefore, that lies behind the things that you are commanding. Uh, he said to teach in chapter 1 verse 10, chapter 1 verse 10, uh, about sexually immoral men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and what else is contrary to sound teaching, a sound doctrine as it's translated on this occasion. Uh, teaching is very much the activity that we're involved in, in, in what Timothy is involved in, that Paul is involved in. Teaching is a funny thing. In 2, Corinthians, in 2 Timothy, you remember, how you've got to preach the word urgently, in season, out of season, with great patience. Urgent patience is engaged in the activity of teaching. That is, we never teach, teach without urging people. We never just teach kind of formally in a conference where people are willing to rile up to come. Wherever and whenever we get the chance, we preach the word. But to preach the word properly requires you to teach the word. Rebuking, encouraging, but teaching. And teaching involves what I hate. Patience. I, 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 I'd like to say it once and move on. They've got that. Let's rest. But no, you've got to continue to teach, to remind, to reinforce, to reapply, to go over the material again. And, and you've got to wait for the fruit to come. Whereas I want instant conversion of the whole of the people. I want to, I want to do myself out of the job in Sydney in one sermon. You know, everyone's converted. Move on. Go to Melbourne. Take two nights there. It's not like that. It's got to do with 
patience in teaching. But he must charge, he commands things that happen. And he's got to charge and command about false teachings. Pick it up in this first paragraph of chapter 1, verse 3. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths, endless genealogies which promote speculation, rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love, that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Here is, the, here is a presenting problem that Timothy has, that he has to deal with, that Paul wants him to deal with, not just to leave it alone. He actually has to charge them. But notice the aim of the charge in verse 5. The aim of our charge is love. That is, it is so easy to argue, to reason, to debate, and for young men to do so with an aim of victory and conquest. Some of us do it on a football field, some of us do it in a business dealing, some of us do it in theological debating. That is not the aim. The aim has got to do with the aim of our charge is love. And that love comes only from a pure heart, that is a cleansed heart that he's talking about here, a good conscience and sincere faith. It's out of those that we love. We love because he first loved us. If God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Our love for others stems from our God's love for us. For while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Once we have grasped God's love, then we know of a cleansed heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. And out of that, we can speak to the other person. We can rebuke, we can charge, we can command. It's 2 Corinthians chapter... Uh, I always get remembered now whether I'm in 4 or 5. In chapter 5, isn't it? That... It's that we're not mad, but it's the love of Christ that constrains us, which explains why he's doing what he's doing in the preaching of the gospel. And it's that lovely passage in Galatians 6. If any of you falls in sin, anyone has sinned, then what should happen? Well, those who are spiritual should seek to restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. And so you bear one another's burdens. And then it goes on to say, but you, you actually do not use this situation to look after yourself. See, I see John in sin. I can immediately feel superior. Well, at least I've never done that. And so his sin becomes my vindication. That must never be. 
If you know the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, who washed you clean from sin, then there but for the grace of God go I, and I must look to myself that I do not have victory over my brother, but that I may bear his burden and gently correct him. Though bearing his burden, it's a funny little passage, that chapter, Galatians 6, 1 to 5. The one level is saying, bear your own burden. Another level is saying, bear, bear your brother's burden. But that is the character of a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. Now, some, wandering away from those things, have been teachers. And these teachers, well, they've led to vain discussions. Because in the end, you see, all their debating and discussions, devoting themselves to myths and endless genealogies, what it has done is promoted speculations rather than stewardship that is from faith. It's, it's an important thing to grasp in the serious study of theology. It's why, in the end, you can't do theology in a secular university. Can't be done. Because... The lecturers are not chosen for the character, for the life, for the convictions. They call themselves professors, but they profess nothing <laughs> and nothingness. And so they can't actually do the job. And their aim, well, their aim is to get their own salary. Their aim is to develop their own credibility on the world market of scholarship. They tolerate students because that's the only way they can get money in to write their books. And so they tolerate students, but what is their aim for their students? Well, to give them information and to get that information back that can, can actually qualify them to become members of the academy. That's their aim. Their aim is not to do with the salvation of their students, it's not to do with the changed lifestyle of their students. It's not to do with... It's, it's a wrong context in which to study theology. You've got to study theology, firstly, in the context of the family, secondly, in the context of the church, and thirdly, in the context of a theological college that is committed to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. That, that is the, the framework of teaching. And that comes out of this, you see that these people, they devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies and promote speculations rather than stewardship. Whereas we want to teach people the word of God, which will lead them to stewardship, will lead them to serving of other people out of the same love which we have, which has come from the love that God has for us in Christ Jesus, who has washed our hearts clean and given us the good conscience and the sincere faith by which we do it. So the book then, 1 Timothy, talks of false teachers and true teachers. Firstly, let's look at the false teachers. In verses 3 to 5, here in chapter 1, it talks about those who teach a different doctrine, uh, uh, a heteros, another doctrine, a different teaching. There is no different teaching than the teaching of the gospel. Remember the great blast that Paul has in Galatians 1, 6-10. Those who would come with another gospel, not that there is another gospel, there is not another gospel. This is really important to understand in a postmodern world. 
where everybody wants to have their own gospels. You can't have your own. There is only one gospel. And it is pervertible and it is, it is changeable. That is, it's not just endlessly elastic that you fit everything under the word gospel. There is a gospel and only one gospel and it is independent of the preacher. For if Paul or an angel should come to us with a different gospel, let him be damned. I'm not sure how you can say that much stronger. Because there is only one gospel. That is the gospel. I heard a man who's accused of being a preacher of the prosperity gospel uh, on the a video the other day uh, he said no no the, I do not preach the video I do not preach the uh, prosperity gospel he said you can't preach the prosperity gospel because there's only one gospel the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ which I thought was a very good strong statement from a man with whom I deeply disagree uh, it was terrific to hear him say it and then he went on to say I do not preach the prosperity gospel I just simply preach that if you accept Jesus, you'll be rich. <laughs> but I don't preach the prosperity gospel. Well, he was half right. right? There, there is no prosperity gospel. It doesn't exist. It's wrong. There's only one gospel. It's the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But just because you accepted the Lord Jesus Christ does not mean that is not part of the gospel. And he would agree with me it's not part of the gospel, but he would still teach it as if it were. These people, you see, give themselves to myths and endless genealogies, speculations. Now, at one level, when you read the Bible and you see passages like that, you say, well, what myths, what genealogies, what... One of the beauties of the New Testament is that it doesn't tell you. I love the fact that the Bible leaves me ignorant of a whole range of things, because I don't need to know. If I knew it was myth X, Y, Z, then I would say, ah, but he wasn't talking about ABC. But he's not talking, he's talking about myths. <coughs> Whatever myths, all myths. The word myths is used five times in the New Testament, every time negatively. That is, the Bible is anti-mythological, which made Rudolf Bultmann completely wrong. Because Rudolf Bultmann talked about the demythologizing of the, of the Bible. You can't demythologize an anti-mythological writing. Right? It's just a nonsense. And it's not because they didn't know about myths. The ancient world was full of myths. But the New Testament was not one of those myths, nor any part of those myths was anti-myths. We believe in history, not myths. There's a Roman Catholic college on the university I used to work on as a chaplain, and uh, they were very big on celebrating the... Uh, uh, assumption of the Blessed Virgin Mary and uh, one of the people Christians in the college caused terrific furor because he put up signs around the, the whole college saying Christians uh, believe in facts not assumptions uh, now, he got us into a lot of trouble uh, however um, true as it may be we don't believe in myths we don't believe in speculations Speculative theology is a nonsense inside Christianity. That is not the case. Uh, there are those who say, if I'm not saying what was been said before, then I'm wrong. If I'm saying anything other than has been said before, I'm wrong. Because Christianity is the defence of that which has already been delivered once for all to the saints. So finding new things is not the activity we're engaged in which therefore makes research slightly difficult. 
Now we can research, but what we're researching is our own errors. The ways in which we have misunderstood the Bible so as to correct our thinking about what the Bible is saying. But we're not researching to find out more than the Bible says. Because the scriptures are sufficient. The gospel has been delivered once for all. And that is what we're engaged in. So the other teachings which lead to speculations and myths, that's not the way. Endless genealogies, I take it, has got to do with the kind of straw-splitting practice of some kinds of over-tidy minds that want every detail of each genealogy to fit together in terms that aren't what the genealogies are about. That is, there are certain mind frames that I've seen in people who will want to have every T crossed and every I dotted and miss the point of what they're reading. See, the genealogy in Matthew's Gospel, for example, very important genealogy, the genealogy there tells you something very important. It tells you about the great phases of the history of Israel. How you go from Abram to David, from David to the temple, to the temple to Jesus. It tells you about the role of women in the history of Jesus. It tells you about the Gentiles who were in the history of Jesus. It tells you, these are the things. It's not aiming to give you a complete list of all the ancestors of Jesus. So if you start off with that assumption, it's a genealogy, it's got every list, every name that's ever been, then you compare it with Luke, and then you compare it with... Well, you've got a very nice wet Sunday afternoon of no use and value to you at all, because you haven't understood the purpose. Likewise, the genealogy of Genesis chapter 5 which is a very important genealogy, telling you about the generations that flowed to Noah. Because Noah and seven others is not what 2 Peter 2 says. 2 Peter 2 says Noah was the eighth preacher of righteousness. That's what 2 Peter 2 says. It's not in any of your translations. You've got to read your Greek to know it, but it says he's the eighth preacher of righteousness. And there's two problems with that. One... When did Noah ever preach anything? The account of Genesis never refers to Noah ever preaching. So why makes you think he's a preacher? And if he is the preacher, the eighth preacher of righteousness, who are the other seven preachers? So it's all very well to say he had seven other in the boat with him. You can work them out. Three sons, three daughters-in-law and one wife. There's the seven others. But that's not what it says. It doesn't say Noah and his seven family members was a preacher in righteousness, it says he's the eighth preacher of righteousness. But if you read Genesis 4 and 5 very carefully and count up the generations between the first preacher of righteousness who's mentioned in chapter 4 verse 25 and work your way through chapter 5, you'll see that Noah is the eighth in the list of preachers of righteousness. That is, Peter understood Genesis better than our Bible translators did. Uh, it's an important thing to grasp hold of, my friends. It's part of the reason why you've got to do your work in learning your Greek and Hebrew so that you will not be held captive to the translations that are before you. But it's also important for us to understand that the genealogies aren't written for idle speculations. They are making important points that you need to understand them in their own terms. Whereas 
There are people who will endlessly debate about this or that. And that kind of debate does not lead to holiness of life. It does not lead anybody to serving anybody better. It's a futile waste of time. Avoid those silly speculations and controversies. The false teachers also, you'll see, let me move on quicker. They are departing from the faith. Chapter 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Notice that there is a spiritual work taking place. The Spirit has predicted that there will be spiritual misleading. For the devil is the father of all lies and his agents you can expect to be liars. But the agents, the spiritual forces are at work in the hearts and minds of false teachers who tell lies. But notice the nature of their, these men who are false teachers. Insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. You see the importance of life and doctrine going together? Convictions and character lie behind the competency to be a teacher. These ones who are leading astray, denying creation, these are the ones whose lives themselves have been destroyed. Well, you look down a little later and it talks again about myths later in the same chapter. Verse 7, have nothing to do with irreverent silly myths, rather train yourself for godliness. Uh, the word silly myths there is actually a polite way of saying old wives tales which we can't say that anymore, it's politically incorrect, so they're now silly myths. But it, it's old women's myths, is what is being said. Uh, you're to, to leave these things. They, these people are the part of the faith. You also see that they teach, but they don't teach in accordance with godliness. I mentioned this morning here in church that godliness is not the same as goodliness. That is, what is the opposite word those who are here this morning, keep yourself quiet, control yourselves. Those who weren't, what is the opposite word for godly? Godless is exactly right. Nearly everybody else says ungodly. Ungodly is not the opposite of godly. Godless is the opposite of godly. Because we've taken the God element out of godly and turned it into goodly. And therefore we describe something as ungodly when it's sinful and wrong. There's a truth in that, but it's not what the word means. The word's got to do with our relationship with God. And so, over in chapter 6, verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He's an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction amongst people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means to gain. 
We'll go on with that in a moment. But notice the nature of this other teaching. The nature of it is controversy. Fighting, quarrelling, debating, arguing. My brothers, this must not be the case. We do not teach the word of God in order to have quarrels and fights and arguments with each other. And especially about things that are of no consequence. Arguing about words or genealogies as the case may be. No, no. If we teach the word of God, we're teaching the word of God to build God's people up in love, in humility, in, in care for one another, in service of one another. You think of Romans 14 and the struggle Paul has there. You know, welcome one another, but not for disputes. That's not the character of it. Hey, uh, as you heard, I'm an Anglican. Now, immediately, if you've got half a brain, in other words, if you're not an Anglican, you, at this point, say, how can he be? What about? And then you can start listing off all the crazy things that are Anglicans. Because you are safe and secure in your denominational background and affiliation, or lack of denominational and affiliation. You are safe and secure that you're at least as not as bad as the Anglicans. <laughs> Do understand, brothers, that Anglicanism is the church I choose to belong to. So can you imagine what I think of yours? <laughs> you see, we can start off in conflicts, can't we? But that is not how you welcome a brother who comes in the name of Christ. Whoever that brother is. You don't start with the conflict, with the dispute, with the arguments. You seek for the truth that you share together in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, in his death and resurrection, in the call for people to repent and put their faith in him, in the assurance of salvation and the knowledge of the truth of God. We have so much in common and we want to quarrel about things that don't matter. Now, can we not talk about these things, Philip? Yes, of course we can. When we love each other, when we've built up our fellowship and friendship in the gospel, when we're doing so to be helpful to each other, there is a place for the honesty of our communication about everything and anything. As iron sharpens iron, as one man sharpens another. Yes, of course we can, but that's not where we start. That is not how it is to be. We are to teach the word of God to build up, to love in humility, counting each other of greater honour and importance than ourselves serving one another in the love which our Lord served us. There is, it is the truth we're concerned about. But in our teaching, we're concerned about the people we're teaching. Teaching is not an abstract thing that young men can fight and argue about. And so, so much arguments and controversies that people have are unnecessary or misplaced or ill-timed. But notice these people, it's worse than that. For they think that there's money to be made in it. Now there is great gain in godliness with contentment. 
For we brought nothing into this world, we cannot take anything out of the world, but if we are food and clothing, with these we'll be content. But for those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through the cravings that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Money? Yeah, money. Money is a real problem in Christian ministry. The love of money is a great evil. And some think that they can or should deserve remuneration for their ministry of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a great blessing to receive anything. For the one we are preaching had nowhere to lay his head. The one we are preaching is the one who died on the cross for us. And we who live out of the gospel are living on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. No, it's not a means for gain. It's a means for, there is great gain in godliness. He says back in chapter 4, verse 7, for this world and the world to come, but with contentment, not with our growth. See, look at the true teachers. The aim of the love we've seen in chapter 1. Verse 18 of chapter 1, if we just go back there, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, holding faith and a good conscience. By rejecting this, some have made a shipwreck of their faith. Timothy is to charge people, but he's got to do it with this true faith and good conscience. Because, you see, the law and the gospel go together. It's a great danger for the unbelieving churchgoers to put the law ahead of the gospel. But it's a great danger for those of us who found the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the doctrines of grace to ignore the law altogether. Nomianism, antinomianism are both on the wrong side. So he says in chapter 1, see these people they teach of the Lord but they don't know what they're talking about because the law is good. As he says in Romans 7, the law is spiritual. And these things of the law, and then he's outlining the Ten Commandments, if you don't recognise them in this form, he says, these things, verse 11, are in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God, which I have been entrusted. The idea that you can leave aside the moral implications of the law of God because you're just preaching the gospel is failing to understand the gospel. Because the gospel is about the forgiveness of breaking the law of God. If you don't have the law of God to break, there's not much gospel to be forgiven of. The two go together. You just need to understand the way in which they go together. And so he tells the kind of teaching, not a woman in chapter 2, verse 11, but, the, but those who are the overseer in chapter 3 and the quality of the overseer is that he must be, the one activity of the overseer, so to speak, is that he must be able to teach. That's the competency of the overseer, is being able to teach. And the contrast to the false teachers of chapter 1, verse 7, they aren't able to teach because they don't understand the gospel. But the competency of the overseer is it is able to teach. But notice how that competency is surrounded. 
The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he call care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with concern seat and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by those outsiders so that he may not fall into, the, into, uh, fall into disgrace and into a snare of the devil. You see, the competency of being able to teach is surrounded by the character of those who would teach. Your competencies have to actually be contained in your convictions and in your character. That's where they must be. Here are people in chapter 1 who do not know what they're talking about. They haven't got the convictions right. Why? Because they've wandered away from the character of the true convictions. And those who are to be the teachers of leaders of God's church why they must be able to teach but to be able to teach is not just that you can articulate it's you've got to have the character and the convictions by which you can teach that which is correctly. And so, Timothy, he will be a good deacon if he actually teaches the truth. Chapter 1, verse 6. Uh, chapter, not 1, 6. Chapter 4, verse 6. If you put these things before the brothers, you'll be a good deacon of Christ Jesus. I know the word servant is there. But if you're going to use the word deacon in the other passage, you should use a deacon here. Maybe you should use servant in both. I actually think you should, but I won't go there now. And he is to teach that which is in accordance with godliness. And so, verse 7, have nothing to do with the irreverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. While bodily training is of some value, godliness is value in every way. And so what must he be like, this, this man? The manner of teaching is important. So keep coming down in chapter 4 and as we uh, come to the close of this session. Uh, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life but also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For this end we toil and strive because we have set our hope of the living God who is the saviour of all people, especially those who believe. Command teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by the prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things. Immerse yourself in them, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing you will save both yourself and your hearers. How do you stop people looking down upon you because of your youth? Grow old. There's one solution I found. It's really good. Hardly anybody looks down on me because of my youth nowadays. But how do you do it when you're still young? You set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. My brothers, especially my younger brothers amongst us here, 
if you are careful in your words, if you're not rash, if you're not a hothead, then your elders will listen to you. And if you back it up by a life that is lived consistently, and you're not harebrained and doing stupid things, you know, doing wheelies outside the church to show the youth that you're really cool, right? you, the elders will not listen to you if you are acting in stupidity or if you're speaking stupidly. That's how you stop people despising you because of your youth. And if you devote yourself to the word of God, public reading of the scriptures, to teaching, to prophecy, the reading of the scriptures, uh, the exhortation and to teaching. And so what you've got to do is immerse yourself in these things. It's a good word to use there. Practice them. Immerse. Practice is a funny word, isn't it? Do you go to a doctor? Our doctors in Australia practice. And at first level I thought, this is not good. I'd like to go one who actually is finished practicing and actually now knows what they're doing. Right? But of course, anyone who is at the top of their game always practices. The greatest sports people always practice. The greatest musicians always practice. When they stop practicing, they stop playing properly. Right? You must practice these things. You keep at it. And what you've got to help people see is not your completion, but your progress. One level, this is really good news. Right? You don't have to have arrived before you start. Right? So you, it's good news. One level, it's awful. Right? Because you've got to keep making progress. You can't sit on your rest on your laurels. You can't sit still. You're going to keep improving. As a young child, I came across a verse of the Bible in Sunday school which I thought was wonderful. When I got older, I realised it was awful. It says, you know, God doesn't look like man looks. Man looks on the outside. God looks on the heart. I said, gee, that was beautiful. Then when I got older, I realised what was on my heart. I wish he'd look on the outside. <laughs> you know? Well... Let them see your progress is just like that, isn't it? At first level, it's good. I don't have to have arrived. Second level is not so good. It means I've got to keep going. Let them see your progress. 